0: Calling all women who are curious and called to be women warriors arising rising in this day and age to heal and grow together. I'm your host, Jennifer Malcolm, self-made entrepreneur, women advocate, and life balance expert. Welcome to the next episode of Genesis Speaks Podcast, the transformative power of women's stories, where every woman has a story and every story matters. And yes, ladies, that means you. You're listening to this statement, that means you. And today I have with me someone I've never met. We just literally met about five minutes ago in our pre-production work, Kelly Ein. And I met Kelly, I believe, through a mutual friend, Claudia. Claudia which again, I've never met Claudia, who's a mutual friend, Laura. So this is how the beauty of this network begins and and is cultivated. So welcome, Kelly, to the show today. Thank you so much. It's an honor to be here. And you're beaming. I love when people come in and (laughs) you have this glorious smile on your face and honored that we can take time today to honor you and your story and to unlock more
1: women's voices and hearts through the sharing of your story. So thank you. Thank you, I mean, it's always exciting i I don't mind telling my story and getting personal, but like if somebody hears it and can relate in the slightest it's it's exciting to me because I just want to help people that can relate even if they can't, and just you know spread awareness and and empower people women, you
0: That's know good. so good. yeah,'ll read a short bio we prepared for you, and then we're gonna just jump right into your story. Sounds great, all right. So Kelly Ion is a recovery assistant for a nonprofit agency working with people who have mental illnesses. She is a single mother of two children and is a full-time student seeking a degree in social work at Eastern Connecticut State University. Kelly is also an alcoholic, now sober for three and a half years. Beautiful. Congratulations. Thank you. And Kelly shares her story today to help other women affected by addictive behaviors to find their way to self love and self care. So welcome my Mm -hmm. friend. First, I wanna say congratulations, three and a half years. That is a long time. Yes. And very courageous. I just would like you to start at the story at any point where you feel is the the beginning and we'll go from there.
1: Uh, Yeah, that sounds great. Um, I am very open about my disease and my addiction. Um, I just talked about it in school actually the other day because I tend to get Diary of the Mouth in school, especially when we're discussing these topics. But in an essence, it helps keep me sober by talking about it and keeping myself in check. And I, you know, it helps keep me humble. So in talking about it, you know, not only do I help to dispel- you know spread awareness and and empower people and inspire, but it keeps me sober as well. So it's it's like a win win situation. So it's it's, it's neat for me personally i I do have an addictive personality. I always have um back into my childhood for as long as I can remember. I just always felt off like I never felt like i I fit in, I never belong um something just was missing and you know, my first addiction was food. Um, from an early, early age, I was a chubby kid. I was always, um, binge eating, um, sitting in my closet, eating raw cookie dough, brownie mix, whatever I could get my hands in on. But the thing is I was literally, I can remember being in my closet and eating it, you know, and hiding that from, from my mom and my dad and just in secret. So it's, funny how that transformed into alcoholism and me hiding that as well. So it, it definitely has been a pattern my whole life. The alcoholism, I would say I didn't start drinking until my 20s. I went to Marist College in Poughkeepsie, New York, and it was kind of my first sense of freedom. My parents mm-hmm. were pretty strict, um, but I just got away. And I think the food and the alcohol just gave me some sort of feeling of control you know that that i could manage or so i thought and you know i came from a history of you know not not a great childhood a very strict family um but there was always this expectation of perfection if you got a b it had to be an a um like i said i was an overweight kid and i remember once my father telling my mom you know you need to do something about her. She's got the ass of a 40 year old. And I think I was 13, you know what I mean? And, and those things stick with you. And, and my self-esteem is just shot my whole life. My mother would dress me because the clothes wasn't good enough that she wanted me to wear. I never had my own sense of identity. I didn't know who I was. Um, I had some traumas growing up. Um, you know a couple of them were sexual and then one um you know at age 16 I found out that the man who raised me my whole life wasn't my father so and it's just all these these um items just adding up to kind of like map out my life you know and I I didn't know what to do with it and my family would try counseling but whenever I opened up in family counseling I would go home and get in trouble so that you know wasn't going to work either Um, my dad was abusive, um, to my mom and my brother, but he never hit me. I I don't know why I escaped that. Um, but that fear was always there. You know, I was always walking on eggs eggshells. I never knew when it was going to be my turn. So I, I definitely never had self-love, you know, and that was not the best environment for me. It was, it's a breeding ground for self-medicating, you know? Um, so when I went to college, it was like, all these, you know, things at my disposal to be anybody other than me. You know, it was like a fresh start. I didn't know these people. I was drinking. I was overeating still. I I went to college and I was still a a heavy girl. Um I stole from my from college, from my roommates money to feed my alcohol and food. You know, and I got caught. And I'll tell you that was one of the longest nights of my life. They were banging on my dorm room, you know, and they were angry and I dropped out. I, I ran. Cause it's just like, what do I do when those things happen? I, I run, you know? So I ran not anymore that it was just, I never finished college. I never finished anything. I, I never saw anything through because I always felt like once someone got to know me, they weren't going to like me because I didn't like myself. I just never finished anything. Um, in college I was drinking to blackout I went to, um, the Poughkeepsie hospital quite a few times for, um, you know, intoxication. But the thing with my drinking with my twenties is that it would be bad, but then I could stop for a little while and then it would be bad again. And then I could stop for a little while. It, it really didn't evolve into what it was before I got sober until my thirties, um, but, you know, when I got pregnant with Caitlin, Caitlin's 16 now, my my oldest daughter. I, I drank the four, first four months of her pregnancy. I just, it, people would say, think of it as a poison. And I just, it just made me feel better. Or so I thought, you know, and I thought that when I was drinking, people liked me more. I was funnier. I thought I was prettier. You know, I just, it was just, I, I needed something.
0: When you were a child sitting in the closet, eating your cookie batter or brownies and and hiding from that. Was it because that you would have been judged? You would have not been allowed. You were, would have been yelled at, or was it just, Hey, it wasn't a parental thing. And I think you, you disclose it as you talked further about your relationship with your parents, but was it self-inflicted or do you feel like because of the environment you were in, that
1: was a safer place for you to hide and be? That's a great question. I think, um, I think it's both actually, I definitely, um, was told that I was heavy and to eat healthy. Um, so I knew I was going to get in trouble. I knew it wasn't allowed. I would hide the evidence, you know, but on the other token of that, what I found out, you know, these past few years is that the sweets, the chocolate that I was eating actually sets off the same serotonins that fire in your brain as alcohol. So I, I kind of equate that it made you feel really good when you were eating it. So drinking makes you feel really good when you're drinking it. And then there's that instantaneous guilt, you know, and you're like, I'm not going to do this again. I'm not going to do this again. And it's just a cycle. It just becomes a cycle.
0: And the other piece, perfectionism, because I've talked about that, that I've dealt with perfectionism throughout my life. And and that was not instilled by my parents. I felt like my environment, I grew up in a in a very loving kind home. Uh, But somewhere in my mid-teens, this, I need to be a perfectionist. I need to get straight A's. I need to be the top of my class. And then realizing through my story when I shared in December, my date rape six years ago, and then that piece of layering that as long as I can be perfect, I do control. And Mm -hmm. there's a piece of control that is this false sense of security, or maybe it's a flight or fight mechanism, but that many women are dealing with this. And what I'm hearing from you, it's from multiple places. And so mine, I know, came from some trauma that I experienced and pain that I experienced and some self-inflicted choices that weren't healthy. And then it becomes this, well, I'm going to push forward in this perfectionist mentality which is not healthy, and that's why I love Brené's book, uh, "Gifts of Imperfection," and and following her work. But it sounds like yours was even—I mean, yours was triggered from your environment with your parents and their mm-hmm. expectations of your body image and your grades. And mine wasn't, and yet we still, as you know, adult college-age adult women, dealt with that same perfectionist poison I'm gonna call it poison because it's not healthy right, right and and it's interesting how it manifests in different ways and I just wanted to make that comparison
1: yeah that is interesting I, and I know a lot of alcoholics that don't have a traumatic background that say they grew up in very healthy you know family environments it's 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 some sort of internal struggle that you know women deal with and you're just trying to find ways to cope Right. And it was interesting because I was uh, talking to a, a close friend back in February
0: and we were talking about, it was about body image and dysmorphia and what we see in the mirror versus, and, and Gort, she's beautiful, but but what she sees versus what people see. And I, I just posed the question, think back what your image, body image may be a hundred years ago or 150 years ago when, you know, the magazines weren't out and TV wasn't out. And and it wasn't about, yes, there might be you know beautiful women that are um still there, but the prevalence in our society is what beauty looks like, and having large boobs and you know curvy curvy hips and a size zero two waistline and polished eyebrows and this that and the other, and can't and keep I'll, up <laughs> no you know ninety five percent of women are just beautiful women that are just us, and I hope that I continue to. Share with the audience of how important self-love, self-care, self-appreciation, how that changes the environment. And I think you were just starting to hit on some of that as well.
1: Yeah, um, it's it's funny because some of the most beautiful women that I know, um, even if on their on the scale of society, gorgeous, I don't know the word that I'm looking for, but on their scale of beautiful, maybe they would fall somewhere in between. But I their inner glow and their and their beauty and their personality makes them so gorgeous to me, you know, and, you know, and I know people have said that to me, like, you're so pretty. Why don't you see it? And I but you feel ugly. You feel ugly and, and you don't feel desirable. And that's because of the standards that society lays out for the women. I mean, I've got a 16 year old daughter and it's it's hard to tell her that she's you're beautiful because she doesn't believe me let's go back
0: to your story. Cause you were saying when you were pregnant with Caitlin, that, uh, you were drinking until four months and then how mm-hmm. did your, uh, alcohol abuse continue through that pregnancy and into the next several years of your life?
1: Sure. So I got pregnant with Caitlin, with her, um, with, with her dad, um, in 2003, um, I met at work and we only knew each other like a couple months, I guess, but we went out drinking and I had, um, a one night stand and I got pregnant with Caitlin. Um, we went back and forth with, were we going to have her? Were we not? So at the time I was unclear what I was going to do. Um, but even when I passed that, I chose, you know, to keep her, um, I did continue to drink for like another month. And I'll tell you that whole pregnancy, I was scared. I mean, I thought she was going to be born with fetal alcohol syndrome. When she was born, I was like, does she have 10 fingers and 10 toes? It was, it was frightening. Um, I did manage to stop drinking um, those last, you know, five months with her. I moved in with her dad. We decided to try and and do it together. Um, and then we had her and I breastfed Caitlin for a couple months and I went back to work and we were struggling financially um I was working at a daycare and paying the daycare to watch her and it was my whole paycheck was going so I decided to be a stay-at-home mom um and then I started drinking again because I drank to play with her um I drank cuz I thought I was more fun you know oh I made homemade play doh, you know and I'm um, cooking dinner and stuff, and I just thought I was a better mom when I was drinking with her. I know that I was drunk on playgrounds with her. I may not have driven there. I might have driven us there, but I definitely was drunk, not fully intoxicated, but definitely have a nice buzz going on just to be better. We did end up getting married and I when Caitlin was two.
0: Did your life from the outside look disruptive and 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 bad or was it a hey you know what we we just live on you know smith lane and we're the happy go lucky couple i mean were was were people around you aware that you guys that you were struggling or was it just a small intimate few that yeah you
1: knew? no i would say it was only um my mother um my new husband and maybe my brother mm-hmm. nobody else knew nobody else knew and even when it got really really bad They would all lie for me, which I know is enabling, but they just wanted to protect me. Um, Even though when it got really bad, everybody knew anyway. So it was like, you're trying to do something that is not going to work, but they were all trying to protect me. It it was a big secret for, for a long time. For you, was it easy to hide or easy to
0: hide because those around you who are close to you protected and lied for you?
1: Um... It was easy for me to hide for a while. It was easy for me to hide until it wasn't. They did protect and lie for me for quite a bit, but also, I kind of stayed to myself a lot. you know um, and once I had my second child, once I had chase, I kind of with chase, I did not drink his whole pregnancy um wow. I did not I breastfed him for a full year, and I didn't drink. Wow, which is amazing, but at the same time. It kind of validated my feelings that I wasn't an alcoholic. I, my life was not unmanageable. But the difference is, as soon as I picked up a drink, it was game on. Mm-hmm. As soon as I felt any type of mind-altering substance, I was right back to where I started. I did my best for a few years to not drink until 5 o'clock. That was, that was a standard for me. I would get the kids to school. I would you know, do their after-school activities. But once it was, I would wait. I would wait. I couldn't wait for five o'clock to hit. <laughs> you know, you're watching the seconds on the clock and you're just kind of like, whew, now I, now I can. And you know? I can understand though that that is where the
0: disparity comes in of, hey, I can manage this because I'm not day drinking. I am being a responsible parent and yet coping or managing to that five o'clock hour and then being able to let go, let loose. So I'm yeah. sure that there's a layer of, Self-inflicted lies and control of I, I got this. It's manageable. I'm functional. I'm present with my kids. So what breaks that? What breaks you out of that? There a rock bottom? Is there just a tenacity at some point that says, you know, what I need to get my life together? So what is that for you that kind of broke that cycle?
1: Oh. Well, in a nutshell, I did not wait until five o'clock anymore. Um, I started drinking earlier and earlier um the older the kids got, we started entertaining, and I did not want to be seen as someone who was drinking too much. so I would go into the house to get some food and I would pound. I would drink before people came over. Um, you know, I can see that how it all led up to that, and then I would say probably the last Three years before I went to Florida, I was drinking around the clock. I've driven drunk with my kids. I have probably driven drunk with other people's children. The last year of my drinking, I was a shut in. I was drinking all day, every day. You know, you can take away my car keys, you can take away. My credit cards, but i'm smart i'm an, you know I figured out a way you 're going to take my credit card Well, I got a checkbook you know um it's just I found a way, and at the end, it was just kind of like i 'm not going to stop you here. you know if you want to drink yourself to death, just do it. I laid in bed probably that full year i didn't see anyone i didn't talk to anyone. My mom flew up from Florida a few times to help with the kids. She took the kids to Florida just to give them some sort of normalcy. I would hear it taking care of the kids and getting them ready for school. And I just, it's going to sound awful for me to say, but I couldn't wait them to leave. So I could drink. I lost a hundred pounds that year, not eating and just drinking.
0: So it sounds like you may have hit a level of depression in that. Mm-hmm. Were you depressive before like this, when you had two kids and you were shut in, or what was this leading up to a very depressed state of
1: being? It it led up to it. I was always anxious. I always had some anxiety. I was never diagnosed with it, um, especially social anxiety. And I think that's why I needed that drink to take the edge off before before I saw people, which would go back into me not thinking that anyone really truly liked me for who I was. Um, but that depression, it was just, it was bad. I just laid in bed and watched binge watched anything and just drank and drank and slept and drank. I mean, I was physically addicted. I was shaking if I didn't get it at that point. Um, you know, we tried detoxing myself a few times. If, if he did succeed and not allowing me to get alcohol, I would detox at home, just vomiting for, for days, not knowing then that that is the most dangerous way to detox off of alcohol. You, you can die. It's, um, detoxing off of alcohol like that is more dangerous than any other drug. Wow. Yeah. I didn't know that either. Wow. Um, so you know, and I he would say, You need to get help. You need to get help or I'm gonna leave you. Um, he would say that so many times though, that I viewed it as an empty threat because it never really happened. Um, and I would say, Okay, tomorrow. I just need one more day, just one more night of drinking and I'll go tomorrow. Um so you know, we did, we tried. I went to a detox and I went into a 30 day program um here in Connecticut. I think I was drinking two days later. Um, that didn't do much for me. Um, I just always thought I could drink successfully. I was going to prove everybody wrong that I wasn't an alcoholic, that I absolutely could gain control of this and that I was going to be able to drink like everybody else. It runs deep in my genetics. Um, my grandmother actually died of cirrhosis. She was an alcoholic. Um, my mother said that she would drink rye, gin. Um, and you would never know, cause I don't remember her ever being intoxicated, but you know, when you're an alcoholic and you wake up in the morning to get to other people's baseline, you probably have to drink quite a bit. So just for her to be normal, she was drinking legally, you are drinking and driving, but you don't feel like it, you know, mm-hmm. um, my biological father who I'm not. I don't know. I'm not in touch with. He is also an alcoholic. Um, so it does run deep on both sides of my family. Wow. Yeah. After you get on your 30 day
0: program, you're drinking a few days later, then what happens?
1: Well, I tried a couple other things. We tried outpatient. I went to a place, um, in Danbury, Connecticut, that was, um, you know, you lived in this beautiful condo and they drove you to, um, therapy all day, all these different types of group therapy, individual therapy, all this stuff. Um, I did that for probably 45 days. The kids would come and see me, but they were so supportive. I had friends come and pick me up because I didn't have my car. You know, my, my girlfriends would say, it takes a village. We're here for you. Um, Did that, came home, started drinking again. I went back a second time and they said they were going to keep me longer this time. You know, and and there actually began my rock bottom. When I was there, I could feel like everything was leaving me. I could feel that I was losing my life. Um, the connections were gone. I knew people didn't trust me. Now I'm being viewed as an alcoholic. That is embarrassing. I have failed as a mother. I have failed as a caregiver. Um, I have no college degree. Like, what? what am I? I'm just a drunk, you know? What's, what's my value? Like, what am I giving to the world? You know, all these questions are going through your mind. So when I was there, you know, what's the perfect deflection? Well, another man is a perfect deflection for me. (laughs) So even though I never cheated on my, my husband, I certainly emotionally cheated, you know, here's Mm -hmm. another addict who gave me attention and told me that I was pretty and I was thin and I wasn't an alcoholic. I just had a drinking problem. And that was everything that I wanted to hear. You know, Mm -hmm. I, I was drinking during that program. I just never got caught. Um, I went home and, you know, found out that I was talking to this man because he was texting me. Um, He was sure I was cheating on him. I I never did physically. um, Emotionally. Yes. But I got home and he's mad at me now, you know, and, He took everything away from me and he said to me, and I'll never forget, he's like, I'm not buying you any alcohol. He's like, Why don't you act like a real drunk and go drink the Listerine in the bathroom? Wow. And I sat there and I was like, I didn't know you could do that. So I tried it. (laughs) Gosh. Yep. Yep. Um, So that, you know, he told me he was leaving me and all of this stuff. um, And that was the worst six months of my life. That was nothing but drinking. That's when he gave me whatever I wanted. And I just drank and drank and drank until, oh, the last week in December, first week in January, um, which would be 2017 going into 2018. I was watching, do you know that show Dexter? It was one of these episodes. And for some reason I was so highly intoxicated I thought I was being hurt and in the middle of December I jumped out of our first floor bedroom window in nothing but my underwear and bra. I ran to the neighbors and I told them that I had been um physically assaulted. I was in psychosis um at the time. Um you know, an alcohol induced psychosis. They called the police. He came over, you know, and and got me home like they didn't believe me. They were my neighbors and all this stuff um but that night i knew it was over um the next day i drank so much that called 911 he said that i had stopped breathing or my breathing had been labored i went to a local hospital who said my blood alcohol level was a 5 yeah and i was i can tell you i remember it i was telling them i was sober um And they, they were laughing at me. I remember like, I remember like it was yesterday. I, I saw the nurse and the doctor talking poorly about me in the hallway. And I was just like, I can hear you. Like, that's so rude. Like, how how dare you? I'm sober. Let me go home. And they came in and they're like, we apologize, but like, you should be dead right now. And you're standing up and talking to us. And remembering. That's how high my tolerance was. Wow. Yeah. I mean, I... I was drinking wine for years and then it went to boxes of wine because the boxes of wine, you can't tell how much I'm drinking. Smart, right? So (laughs) replacing the boxes before anybody knew. And then that wasn't enough. So I had switched to tequila and vodka on top of the wine and, and all that stuff. So that night at the hospital, I just figured it was like another, any other night that I've been brought in. They knew me, they knew me there at this point. So, the difference on this night, though, was in the ambulance ride, I said to the um, EMT, I can't do this anymore. Mm-hmm. And it, I've never had suicidal ideations. Um, they took it as that. I'm assuming what I meant was I can't live like this anymore. But they took it as a as a threat against my life. Um, so they told me that I was now under their care for the next 24 to 72 hours. Um, they transferred me to the psych ward. And that was the best thing that ever happened to me. Had they let me go that night, I may not be sitting here today. Um, they they brought me upstairs and, you know, there was one nurse who came in and she's like, I can't, you know, I just, you don't look like an alcoholic. Mm-hmm. And now you're just feeding into me, you know, and it just show, goes to show that nobody looks like an alcoholic, you know, Right. half the women I know from, from the rehab that I was at, you know. They don't look like heroin users. You know, it's just, you can't, can't go off somebody's physical appearance. But another, a social worker came up and she was like, look, you know, your husband called, you can't go home. He's, he's filing a restraining order. You're a danger to the kids. You're a danger to yourself and you're not allowed to come home. She's like, so I have two options for you, Pennsylvania or Florida. <sighs> so I have no money. I don't work. I was a stay-at-home mom. Um, you know, and I had I had nothing. My my family was done with me. I have no friends at this point, not really. So she showed me the brochures and I saw the one in Florida and I said, Well, if I'm gonna go somewhere, I'm gonna go to the beach. Warm. Exactly. It looked beautiful. It it had a pool and bungalows, and I was like, Oh, that's nice. That was false advertising, by the way. (laughs) That is not where I went. bait bait
0: and switch there. (laughs) (laughs) Yes,
1: But I, you know, I, I agreed to go to Florida. I went to Pompano beach, Florida. Um, the kids and Ambrose drove me to the airport. Um, I was sober at this point, um, not feeling very good, but sober and Ambrose gave me a few dollars for a coffee. Of course I found someplace and I had a beer in the airport but I flew down. I was picked up by, by the treatment center and they took me to their, to their detox. And I was horrified. This was just, I was surrounded by fentanyl users and cocaine users and heroin. And I'm just a little white girl who drinks too much, you know, that's, that's how I saw it still, you know, and I, I didn't feel like I belonged there. I was there for 11 days and, um, in detox, uh, I lied to get myself out of there. Cause I saw people coming in and going into treatment and I just wanted to get it over with, like, let me just do my 30 days and, and go home. Right. So, um, I was like, listen, I just talked to Ambrose and he said I could go home. So unless I'm, I'm just sitting here and detox people smoking cigarettes and I'm not. So they brought me the next day to the treatment center for me, that treatment center, um, you know, they saved my life. I cannot Mm -hmm. say enough things about them. They scared me. They changed me from the core. Um, it's just, I don't know, like we, we stayed in in this campus, um, you know, with, with behavioral health technicians and, I was in a an apartment with four other women, and every day we were in therapy from 8 a.m. to 4.30 p.m., and then at night we had AA meetings, and in the beginning, I only got to speak to my children. In detox, I couldn't speak to anybody. Um, I only got to talk to them 15 minutes, twice a week. They would write me letters, but honestly, it was easier for me to pretend like I was going home tomorrow because I didn't want to read their letters. It made me sad. Yeah. The first day with my therapist, she's like, I'd like you to stay here for a year. I said, you're crazy. There's no way. Yeah. I said, no, you know, and she's like, I I think you need a year. And I was like, nope, I have kids. I mean, I have kids. I have to get home. I didn't realize that, you know, the two years that I spent in Florida, honestly, you know, I, at the time, I didn't know that that was just going to be a drop in the bucket. So let's look now how many years I've just added on to being with the kids.
0: What was so different about this program versus the other treatment programs that you were in? Was it the people? Was it their style of therapy? Was it the community? What was it that was
1: somehow resonated with you this time versus the previous times? Both. They they scared me out of my mind, <laughs> to yeah. be honest. Um, the other couple treatment centers, they coddled me. Um, you know, they just, I'm really, really good at, flying under the radar, um, acting like a good, a good girl, you know, and just doing what I'm told they saw right through me. They, they saw right through me. And I was with some, some girls now that are, are my best friends. I mean, I'm in one of the girls' weddings and in in a couple of months that I met one of the first days I was there. I didn't like her when I first met her, but now we're, (laughs) now we're best friends. I was intimidated. I, I get intimidated very easily. Um, and I kind of sheltered myself, but Um, they were very, very scary. They were very scary. Um, I know one of the first big groups therapy sessions I was in and now we're guys and girls and there's probably 150 to 200 people in this room. The owner, his (laughs) name's he's like, they told me he would leave me alone because I was new. So I wasn't, I was just kind of like hiding. And he's Mm -hmm. like, who's Kelly? Where's, where's Kelly? I said, it can't be me. And he's like, Kelly from Middletown, Connecticut, you know? And I was like, oh man. And he was like, are you scared? And I said, yes. And he's like, you should be. He's like, you're a woman alcoholic. You should be scared. Wow. And from there it went to, you know, my therapist. She kind of became a second mother to me, um, which I needed, you know, she was hard, but I needed to feel that maternal sense of love. I know my mother loves me, but I needed to feel someone who really loved me for me. I know my mom like loves me. I don't think she likes me. Mm -hmm. So, and that's okay. You know? Um, but what gave me was that sense of heart, you know, that sense of she sees me and it, and it's okay. Mm -hmm. But I had another, I had another clinician and she changed my life. Um everybody helped. Everybody played a role. But this one clinician I walked in, I was put into several different mini groups. So I was put into a family group. I was putting into I was put into an eating disorder group because I was not eating in um detox. Yeah. Yeah. Um the food that they served was very fattening and I had lost so much weight. Now you see where my addiction is moving. It's it's transferring now back to the food because I don't have the alcohol. I didn't want the food that they were serving there because I didn't, I'm thin now. I don't, I don't want to gain weight. Um, I walked into her group and she was like, oh, good. Here's another Connecticut entitled B. Why don't you have a seat? Mm -hmm. And you know, I'm in my converses and my vineyard vines and I'm shaking in my, (laughs) in my boots. And she worked on me for three hours. Why are you here? Why are you here? what do you want? You know, you're getting divorced. Is this what you want? You know? And it was the longest three hours of my life, but that was the first time that someone made me admit that I was an alcoholic and mean it. Wow. She was, she was a game changer for me. And, and, and then the fact that she saw through me and saw potential in me and believed in me. I know I'm getting emotional, but it's just like, that was the first time that anyone ever really Did that, you know, and 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 the way she did it was to break you down in order to build you back up, you know. And she had she had me admit I had even then. I think I was there about a month. I had no intention of never drinking again. I had no intention. She, you know, I thought I was going to get an apartment at home, be divorced, meet a new man, have my kids part time, not drink when I have my kids, and then drink when I don't. I fully intended that to be my life. Wow. And she made me admit that. And then, you know, I, by the end of that day, I said, I need to break these generational curses. Don't I want better for my kids? You know, I said, I have to stop it here. I don't want any, my children at least to go through what I'm going <sighs> through. I was in their care in the lockdown. We weren't locked in, but essentially we were locked in um, for six, 60 days. Wow. wow. Um, and then I went into their halfway, into their sober living program. Okay. So from there, um, you had to get a sponsor in AA. You had to be working the steps. You had to have a job and um, you had to, you know, be tested. And, and, and at night I had intensive outpatient treatment. Wow. So I did that for a few more months. I got a job at a local gym making $8 an hour at the front desk, cleaning gym. Now I haven't worked in years. So that was humbling. And I'm walking everywhere. I I don't have a car in, in the Florida sun living with five other women in a little house, you know, all different personalities, you know, old, young. It's It's just, it was a change for sure you know, I'm, I'm on food stamps at this point too. So I, you know, walking to the grocery store to walk my groceries home, it was a reality check for me. I mean, this, this, this was, this was it. This was my life now. I don't want to miss that piece with your therapist that you
0: said broke you down in order to build you up because Mm -hmm. so many things I have a close relationship that I think part of the the way we built the foundation was already already had a break in it. And then when you build on it and then you start seeing, you know, unhealthy behavior or interactions and realizing like, all right, I need to go back to core. Like where are we at on the foundational level? Because if I keep trying to build a friendship, truth, experiences on a broken foundation, it's going to crumble. It's going to continue to you know, topple yet. If I'm willing to go deep to wounds and core issues and break generational curses or whatever that is and reestablish that foundation in order to then build upon that, I honor a, your journey and your, your sharing of that. But also it sounds like an amazing facilitator who wouldn't let you get through or past your own lies or denial Mm -hmm. to get to that core. And that takes courage it's like going into you know the pit of hell to face some of those and articulate that to someone and not just know it maybe in your heart or your head, but to acknowledge that with someone that takes a tremendous amount of courage. And I really want to honor you in that space.
1: Thank you. Yeah, it was not easy. No one's ever really spoken to me like that before. It, it was a lot of profanity and it was cruel, but it was necessary. And from there, you know, we spent the majority of my time, um, working on healing my inner child
0: mm-hmm.
1: once, once, cause you know, you can, you can have a wound and put a bandaid on it, but it's not going to heal unless you rip it off, you know, rip the bandaid off and, and, and let the healing process begin. And for me, that was going into inner Kelly and finding out in my foundation, what was missing. That's good. And start good. building myself back up. Finding new language and new vernacular and new, a
0: newness and everything. So, and, after, a new strength. and a new strength. <sighs> no, and your resolve to stay committed and to stay in truth and in light and in integrity with yourself and your family and your friends and your AA sponsor and all
1: of that. That's a lot of hard work. It was a lot of hard work. And it was, I'll tell you, one of the hardest things for me personally, yes, working on myself and fixing myself. But one of the things that hurt the most was knowing that life went on without me at home. Mm. Kids are going on vacation. They're doing all these things up here without me. Um, My ex started dating one of my friends while I was gone. Moved her into my house within months. Taking care of my kids. This is a woman that I trusted. And I was only three months sober, four months sober, you know, actually, I was probably six months sober. I was on step four. So, but still not, not sober enough to want to be handling all of these things in my life, you know, all these, all these stressors. So then how long were you in Florida versus then I think that you moved back north? I did. I, um, I've been home now for a year. It's been a year, April 1st. I was in Florida, a total of two years, a total of two years. I stayed with their sober living facility. I worked, I saved my money um, and would fly home, see the kids, see um, a football game or a cheer game or whatever, go back. I would spend my money, go home, save and do that all over again. Um, at, at my year sober, um I had been saving my money because I got promoted to a house mom in the, in the house that I lived. So once you become a house mom and you are a good role model, you, you no longer have to pay rent. Oh, so you. I was able to save, um, some money and I put down, you know, a little something on a studio apartment in Florida, but then I started working for the, they hired me, <laughs> the treatment center that I went through. Wow. Yeah. So, um, they, they won't hire anyone without a, less than a year of sobriety. So, um, on my year I applied Wow! and they, they took me, it felt like home, you know, I, I felt like that's where I wanted to be. And I knew that I wanted, I already felt that calling. Like I want to, I want to help and I want to be around other addicts, you know, instead of just working a job at, you know, Publix or, or you fit, you know, I wanted to do something more meaningful for the first time in my life. Um, So they did, they hired me and I, and I worked there for a year um, and I bought a car, you know, it was a 2005 Honda Civic, but I wasn't walking anymore. (laughs) So I had a job, I had my own apartment, a little studio, um, but things were changing. And I think that I was starting to feel more confident. Um, Exercise is a healthy coping skill of mine now. I never got involved in a relationship. I never had a boyfriend. I really spent all that time focusing on me. And I yeah. listened to everything people told me. They told me to my sponsor, my therapists, everybody, I listened and I did what they told me to do because I agreed that if if what they were telling me to do didn't work, I could always go back to my old lifestyle. But if what they told me was gonna work and I had this beautiful life ahead of me then what the heck, give it a shot. A real true, one true, honest shot. That's good. You know?
0: So was it super scary for you to make that transition from Florida back up to Connecticut, knowing that, hey, you're leaving a lot of your support, your network, you have an apartment, a job. There is a, there's a security there and a community that knows you, can call you out if they have questions that you have now working for and with and a lot of trust was it a huge like oh my like here we go in connecticut or were you really confident that you were called to come home
1: no i wasn't confident at all <laughs> <laughs> and i don't think other people were either yeah um i think they were proud of me and happy for me um my brother even said he didn't expect me to succeed as much as i have in this year of me being home um i'm still scared i'm still scared i um every day I have to work hard every day. I have to keep myself in check. Um, you know, there's days that I'm sad. There's days that I'm happy, you know, and, and I don't have a partner. I'm, I'm really focused on my kids and school and, and, um, work and, which is all wonderful, great things, you know, but it gets lonely every once in a while. So, you know, I, I tend to get into those pity parties, but I have to remember, you know, and I, and I talk to my higher power because that's one thing that I lacked my whole life. I never had spirituality, you know, and that is one thing that I tap into. And I was coming back to the same community that knows that I left. So I'm already stigmatized. So who's gonna, who's gonna want to engage with me and who isn't? Yeah you know? Um, and it's been divided, you know, some people have reached out and, you know, and it's hard for me to gauge, do, do these women want to be my friend or are they just all done with me? Are they waiting for me to reach out or should I wait for them to reach out? Cause I don't want to be pushy, you know, because honestly they don't know me anymore. The, The Kelly that they knew three years ago doesn't exist. You know, but there's some beautiful people that have welcomed me with open arms and just because I get nervous, you know, and and but I handle it my healthy way now. (laughs) But I did, I got, you know, the job that I work for this nonprofit. It's not addiction, but it is mental health. And they hired me in Florida, so they hired me over Zoom. It just seems like everything is falling into place. So I kind of just let things happen because. When I think something is supposed to be right, when I plan them out, and never seems to work out that way. I feel like everything happens for a reason. I still have to work for it. But I feel like if I'm pulling so hard to go right and like the world is pulling me to go left, like I just need to let go of the wheel because I'm fighting for something that probably isn't meant for me.
0: Wrapping up, I do have a question on addiction in general, because mm-hmm. what I've learned is that addictive people, no matter what it is, alcohol, exercise, TV, binging, purging, drugs, whatever it is, that there is a tendency to do a substitute into something else. So it could be, I wasn't alcoholic, but I'm not anymore, but now exercise is all I can focus in on. And maybe it's not exercise and now it's drinking and whatever that is. But what are, what are ways to identify Hey maybe this isn't healthy anymore. Maybe I'm just doing a transference of behavior versus hey, I have overcome alcohol and I'm good.
1: Oh yeah, absolutely. Well, you need to be aware. You have you have to you have to know your body and you have to know when you're starting to obsess because if you're thinking about it too much, then there's a problem right then and there. Um, people that don't suffer from addiction, they don't think about, I only exercised for 40 minutes today. They're probably like, yes, I did 40 minutes today. You know? Mm -hmm. Um, I'm not, when, when you're thinking, I just ate some ice cream, I'm going to gain five pounds. Like it doesn't work that way. Like just enjoy life. So if you're obsessing about it, then you know, there's a problem. You know, it, it does transfer. I, for me, like I catch myself, especially with the food, Like I. I've been heavy, I've been thin, now I'm healthy. Like it's ice cream is my <laughs> it's, it's my go-to, you know, that's my indulgence. And I have to tell myself, I talk myself through it. Like it's okay. It's okay, mm-hmm. you know, this is how you're being kind to yourself. It's it's okay, mm-hmm. but it does it does transfer from one addiction to the other and you have to know that you're an addict at the end of the day. You're an addict and if you even think for a second that there's a problem then there's a problem and you need to reach out and talk to somebody, you know, somebody that you trust or a therapist. Like I'm so super lucky to have such a strong, supportive women. The women in my life are amazing. I can't tell you I wouldn't be where I am without the encouragement of other women, which is why I'm dedicating my life to it. You know, there's, there's a lot of women out there who said, "I, I prefer the friendship of men. I prefer this. I don't get along with women. But for me and for an addict, it is the women that are going to build you up and stand by you because nobody understands you like another woman, you know? And I'm, and as we're wrapping up,
0: I am humbled by your courage. I honor your truth and your story. I know that no matter what part of your journey, there's a piece that I, and maybe you're like, nope, it's easy for you to share now. But I, I am in awe of your courageousness and your willingness to be vulnerable. And so like, I, have, like I, I don't know you, but like proud of the hard work and the self-love and self-care that you're demonstrating and also being an advocate in your words to other women to be aware, to advocate for yourself, to heal, to go to that. I mean, there's so many gems of truth and golden nuggets that you shared today. That I am amazed by the woman that you are.
1: Thank you so much. That means a lot. Thank you, Jen. I appreciate that. You're so welcome. Do you have any last parting words for the audience before we wrap up? I just hope that, you know, if there's anybody struggling out there, that there's always help. There's always help. And there is no shame in being an addict or an alcoholic at all. You know, it's one phone call away, one text away, and there is somebody waiting you know, in the dark to hand you a flashlight.
0: So good. good. Well, thank
1: you. It is such an honor to have you here on the podcast today.
0: And I am insanely proud and my heart is full of joy. And I hope that those of you who are listening today, that you come away with courage and resolve and knowing that this community of women, no matter what stage or walk in life, where you're at in self image, confidence, voice, Empowerment, struggles, addiction that we all learn and grow together. And through this collective vulnerability of sharing our stories and our truth, our failures, our wins, that we just become human and kind and, and growing together. So thank you, Kelly. It's been an honor. Thank you. Fun. You're very welcome. <laughs> all right. Thanks, ladies, for t- tuning in today. And we will catch you next week. All right. Have a great day. Bye bye. I wanted to take a minute to connect with our listeners and let you know that this is our last episode of season two. I can't believe we're coming up on one year with Genesis Speaks and what an amazing experience it's been. I want to thank all of you who have chosen to share your stories as it's truly appreciated. Your bravery is a gift you are giving the world. I hope our audiences enjoyed the collective experience of hearing these courageous women, the laughter, the tears, the joy and pain have all helped us to learn, ponder, and grow this year. We're gonna take a few months off to plan upcoming initiatives, gather new stories, and be ready to jump into season three with all of you by the end of summer. In the meantime, please make sure you follow us on social media to keep up with the community, watch out for a few upcoming blogs, and feel free to go back and listen to an episode you might have missed. If you're called to share your journey with other women, please reach out to our team. We are truly looking forward to continuing this journey with the Genesis Movement, where every woman has a story and every story matters. Have a great spring and the rest of your summer, and we'll connect soon. Thank you for listening to the Genesis Speaks podcast. If you love the show, one of the best things you can do is to share it with a friend. Tell them what you like about it, how it inspires you, and invite them to listen. Subscribe to the Genesis Movement to empower women's voices and reclaim the power over your own narrative.